Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. David Mamet. He's got a feel for the way people talk and think and cheat and love. And he's got the Pulitzer Prize to prove it. Now America's most exciting writer makes his directorial debut. Join him in the House of Games. Slowly look over my left shoulder and tell me if you see him. Yes, he's just crossing the street. The players. A sucker born every minute, huh? And two to take him. A woman of one world. You want to see how a true bad man plies his trade? Yes. Seduced by the thrill of another. We're about to sting this guy. I'll do it with you, please. Discovering that danger is the ultimate high. What is life without adventure? A man who offers you his trust. You've got a tell. A tell? You're telling me the hand that has the coin. You want to know a tell? His confidence. You watch this guy and tell me, does he play with his gold ring? And takes you. Do you want to make love with me? For everything you've got. The game. In or out. Rule one. Don't volunteer anything. Secrecy. However strange things seem, keep your mouth shut. Rule two. What is it you think I want? Control. Somebody to possess you. To take you into a new thing. Rule three. I don't understand how this works. Deception. You keep looking for the tell. Rule four. Police, don't move. Survival. I've got to get out of here. Rule five, ignore all other rules. We've lost $80,000 we borrowed from the mob. I should have turned around the first moment you brought the broad. In the house of games, there's no one you can trust. Who brought the damn cop? Not even yourself. Lindsey Krauss, Joe Montaigne, in David Mamet's House of Games. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie House of Games from 1987. The studio was Orion Pictures. The release date was October 11, 1987. The running time, 102 minutes, and it was rated R. I don't have the budget numbers, but the box office only took in $2.5 million, making it the 151st ranked movie of 1987. This is definitely a cult classic. Rotten Tomatoes, though, gives it 96% fresh from 28 reviews. Their consensus is galvanized by David Mamet's punchy dialogue and a winding succession of surprises. House of Games is a terse thriller where confidence is currency. Roger Ebert at the time... Four out of four stars, and here's his review. This movie is awake. I've seen so many films that were sleepwalking through the debris of old plots and secondhand ideas that it was a constant pleasure to watch House of Games, a movie about con men that succeeds not only in conning the audience, but also in creating a series of characters who seem imprisoned by the need to con, or be conned. House of Games was written and directed by David Mamet, the playwright of Glengarry Glen Ross, and the screenwriter of The Untouchables. And this is his directorial debut. Originally, it was intended as a big-budget movie with an established director and major stars, but Mamet took reins himself, cast his wife in the lead, and then had old acting friends in other important roles, and shot it on the rainy streets of Seattle. Usually, the screenwriter is insane to think he can direct a movie. Not this time. House of Games never steps wrong from beginning to end, and it is one of this year's best films. 
The plotting is diabolical and impeccable, and I will not spoil the delight of its unfolding by mentioning the crucial details. What I can mention are the performances, the dialogue, and the setting. When Lindsay Krause enters the House of Games, she enters a world occupied by characters who have known each other so long and so well in so many different ways that everything they say is kind of shorthand. At first, we don't fully realize that. And then there's a strange savor to the words they use. They speak, of course, in Mammoth's distinctive dialogue style. An almost musical rhythm of stopping, backing up, starting again, repeating, emphasizing, all of the time with a hint of deeper meanings below the surfaces of the words. The leading actors, Chicagoans Joe Mantegna and Mike Nussbaum, have appeared in countless performances of Mammoth plays over the years, and they know his dialogue the way other actors grow into Beckett or Shakespeare. They speak it as it is meant to be spoken, with sort of aggressive, almost insulting directness. Mantegna has a scene where he reads Kraus, where he tells her about her tells, those small giveaway looks and gestures that poker players use to read the minds of their opponents. The way he talks to her is so incisive and unadorned, it is sexual. These characters and others live in a city that looks as the Seattle of Trouble and Mind did, like a place on a parallel time track. It is a modern American city, but none we have quite seen before. It seems to have been modeled on the paintings of Edward Hopper, where lonely people wait in empty public spaces for their destinies to intercept them. There is in all of us a fascination for the inside dope, for the methods of the confidence game, for the secrets of a magic trick. But there's an internal gulf between the shark and the mark, between the con man and his victim. And there is a code to protect the secrets. There are moments in House of Games where Montaigne instructs Krauss in the methods and lore of the con game. But inside every con is another one. I met a woman once who was divorced from a professional magician. She hates this man with a passion. She used to appear with him in a baffling trick where they exchanged places, handcuffed and, and manacled in a locked cabinet. I asked her how it was done. The divorce and her feelings meant nothing compared to her loyalty to the magical profession. She looked at me coldly and said, The trick is told when the trick is sold. The ultimate question in House of Games is, who's buying? And that's the end of Ebert's review. So many people have not seen this film as Orion Pictures shamefully did not publicize the film during its initial release in 1987. It did gain a modest following due to word of mouth and cable television, of course home video. Now I was fortunate enough to discover the film in college when I took a film appreciation class. I was absolutely enthralled with the entire showing of the film and couldn't wait to see it again and catch all the little plot points I might have missed. Criterion has released a fabulous Blu-ray of the film to give it its just due. Okay, let's get into the making of the film. So David Mamet started as a playwright before he transitioned into screenplays around 1980, with his first being the remake of The Postman Always Rings Twice, which was with Jack Nicholson and Jessica Lange. His directorial debut would, of course, come with this film, House of Games. Mamet realized early on his potential shortcomings of being a first-time director. He was quoted as saying he wasn't going to be John Ford or Akira Kurosawa, but since he wrote the screenplay and understood the meaning of each sequence, he could film each shot in a clean sort of way, meaning the audience would understand the story through his shots and the film would be considered good or bad depending on the quality of his written story and his preparation. Mamet, realizing that his film was dialogue heavy, did a storyboard of almost a silent film, meaning showing the words through pictures. Now this isn't uncommon, but for Mamet, it helped him visualize how he wanted to shoot his film. 
However, it was storyboard artist Jeff Balsmeyer and cinematographer Juan Ruiz Anchia who really took Mamet's original drawings and turned them into a storyboard that could actually be used and shot into a real film. As the old saying goes, you're only as good as the people around you. What Mamet learned was a simple rule. Don't confuse the viewer. And film editor Trudy Ship said things would become more clearer in the editing process. One thing that helped Mamet achieve this lack of confusion of the film is he limited how many characters were in the film. If you watch the film, you'll recognize that the cast is very sparse. Mamet was married to Lindsay Krauss at the time of House of Games. They were married from 1977 to 1990. Krauss laughs now, recalling that Mamet had basically written the script for her. Krauss liked that the Dr. Margaret Ford character was a complicated hero though some watching the film might have different interpretations about who the hero really is. And that's what great films do. They leave it up to the viewer to decide. Krauss had made two films with Sidney Lumet prior to House of Games. They were Prince of the City and Daniel. Krauss mentioned to Lumet that her husband was a writer and believed that they would get along well. They obviously did and had a connection as Mamet wrote The Verdict, which was directed by Lumet and starred Paul Newman. Krauss also appeared in that film. By the way, Krauss also appeared in the comedy classic Slapshot in 1977, also with Paul Newman. She played the wife of the Ned Braden character. He's the one that strips off all of his gear in the middle of a game. For five years, Mamet tried to get House of Games made, but was rejected over and over. In 1984, Lindsay Krauss co-starred in the film Places of the Heart with Sally Field. One of the producers of the film was Mike Hosman. And again, Krauss helped her husband by suggesting that Mamet reach out to Hausman about House of Games. Hausman loved the script and went to Orion Pictures, who owed him a favor. And this is how House of Games was greenlit. Krauss said it was a challenge being directed by her husband because at the end of the day, most actors want to go home and complain about their director, even if they liked and respected them. And in this case, it just wasn't possible being married to the director, as Krauss was. She also said it was very tiring working for her husband as she wanted to please him as an actor more than a regular director. Mammon had written the play for Glengarry Glen Ross, as I mentioned, which Joe Montaigne starred in on Broadway. Pacino actually turned down the play, and that play won a Tony Award for Montaigne. Montaigne felt getting the role of Mike Mancuso was an absolute gift, as the character was so well-written, and it was a joy for him to play. An underrated character, but who makes his mark, no pun intended, is Ricky Jay, who is a key member of the infamous poker scene. He was a magician and sleight-of-hand expert and was vital in making the film and the art of the con, and it made it work as well as it did. Okay, let's get into the film. So it begins with a woman approaching Dr. Margaret Ford, that's Lindsay Krause, and she does this in front of a large office building. Margaret is a well-renowned psychiatrist who has written a successful book about OCD, which is Obsessive Compulsive Disorder. The woman recognizes Margaret and wants her to sign the book for her and tells Margaret she helped her very much. Margaret says she's glad and signs her books and then walks away. Right off the bat, you can see that Margaret is a stereotypical shrink. She's very calm and cold, almost overthinking every move and word that comes out of her mouth. Margaret meets with one of her patients that is being held at a mental hospital. Margaret takes meticulous notes about her patient's dreams. Though the patient seems incredibly annoyed, like Margaret isn't paying attention to her, though Margaret really is. Margaret has a lunch meeting with her mentor and friend, Dr. Maria Latour, played by Lila Scala, and they discuss her patient and the dreams that she's having. Maria discovers that the dream and the animal that the patient supposedly sees is just a metaphor for Margaret listening to her patient and hearing what she's saying. 
Maria believes Margaret is unfulfilled and a workaholic. She simply cannot relax, even with the enormous success of her book. Margaret's next patient is named Billy, and he's a gambling addict. He's combative with Margaret, saying she's not helping him, and her theories and words solve nothing. He then pulls out a gun and says if she can't help him, he's going to kill himself. Margaret convinces Billy to give her the gun, and she will help him. But then Billy tells her that he lost $25,000 gambling, which he does not have. And if he doesn't pay off his debt, he will be killed. Billy then asks Margaret how she can possibly help him with that problem. Margaret decides to visit the tavern or pool hall known as the House of Games, and this is where Mike Mancuso, that's Joe Montagna, well, where he operates. Mike is the guy that Billy owes the money to. Margaret asks the bartender that she wants to see Mike. He says that Mike's not around, but she's persistent, and the bartender agrees to look for Mike. Margaret stands by herself, watching a few guys play pool. Mike does appear and curtly asks Margaret what the fuck she wants. Margaret holds her ground, saying that her patient Billy is a compulsive gambler and he's sick and that he needs help. Mike acts like he doesn't know what she's talking about and then excuses himself. He returns with a tiny notepad which says Billy owes $800, not $25,000. Mike is impressed that Margaret sized him up so well, knowing that he wasn't the type of guy to go around killing people over gambling debts. Mike then asks Margaret to do him a favor. If she agrees, he'll cancel Billy's $800 debt. What is it? Do you know what a tell is? A tell? There. Do this. You have to choose a hand. You do it to me. Do it. Bingo. Do it again. Okay. Now I can do that all day. How? You got to tell. You're telling me the hand that has the coin. I am? Yes. How? It's not important. Okay, you're doing it with your nose. You point your nose slightly at the hand that has the coin. Okay? That's a tell. Now, look back over my shoulder. Guy in a beard and a cowboy shirt. You see him? Yes. He's from Las Vegas. He's been beating me all night. He's got a tell, okay? When he's bluffing, okay, he plays with his little gold ring. And I caught him doing it. He knows I did, so he stopped. He's conscious of himself. I want you to do me this favor. What's that? I want you to be my girlfriend for a while. Come in the game, you stand behind me, watch me play. We get in a big hand, I, I go to go pee. You watch this guy and tell me, does he play with his gold ring? Then I know he's bluffing, I win the big hand, and I forget the 800 your friend owes. If you're such a good gambler, how'd you fall into this bind? Who told you I'm a good gambler? I'm not a gambler. You're not a gambler? No. Well, what are you then? Look, I made you a deal. I'll tear up your friend's marker if you help me out. Will you do that? All right. Margaret goes with Mike into the back room where the poker game is being held. She sits next to Mike and then waits for him to go get up to the go to the bathroom so that she can see if the guy, Ricky J, that Mike pointed out, does his tell by playing with his ring. You call. You only call? Well, let's go visit Mr. Moore. You're 800. 
and I raised 2,500 bucks. I can't stand it. South. I'm going south. South Street Seaport, the man says. He can't stand the heat. He can't stand it. You want to play cards? The bet is two and a half thou. The bet? I'll tell you what the bet is. You're 25. And I raise you $6,000. Son of a bitch, you've been steamrolling over me all night. What are you trying to tell me? One card, you caught a flush, a boat, what? I think you're bluffing, pal. I think you're trying to buy it. Then you're gonna have to give me some respect or give me some money. The bet is $6,000. I know what the goddamn bet is. I'm going to pee. Watch my cards. I thought you were gonna bring me luck. Make your own luck. Taking change. Uh-huh. And I think I might have to go to the well again. Yes, yes, yes. Some people say one thing. Some people say something else. The man can't play. You should stay away. His money is as good as yours is. His money is. Now we're going to see about his cards. That's right, miss, isn't it? Now we're going to see his hand. How you doing, miss? You bringing him good fortune? Excuse me? Who do you like in this hand, him or me? Leave the woman alone. Just making conversation. Who do you like in this showdown here, your friend or me? Well, I've seen his hand, but I haven't seen yours. That's right. That's absolutely right. Okay, let's play some cards. Now, the bet is what? You raised $6,000, Mike. Mike, how are you feeling? You ready to take this guy's money? Give me a light. He's bluffing. You saw him. He did exactly what you said. He played with his ring. He did. What am I on the books for? I don't mind. Well, he better be. Because my problem is I don't have the six. And if I lose... You aren't going to. Are you sure you saw him? He played with his ring. Call the bet. $6,000. I think you're bluffing. What are you, Joe Hep? I didn't ask what you think. Raise, call, or fold. I should raise your ass, but I'm just gonna call. My marker's good for a moment. What is this marker? Where are you from? Where am I from? I'm from the United States of Kiss My Ass. My marker's good. Fuck you! And get the goddamn money up or fold the goddamn hand. Listen, mister, this man is a man of his word. He's a regular player. Where I come from, the rule is you can't call the bet, you're out of the hand. Call the bet. I'll call the bet. I'll back it up. With what? I said I'll back it up. If he loses, I'll write you a check. Who is this broad? She's a friend of Mike's. She's all right. Your bet is called. 
Trip aces. Beat him, my friend. Club flush. You owe me $6,000. Thank you very much. Next case. Well, it looks like the tell of playing with his ring didn't work out after all, and now Margaret is on the hook for the cash. Mike and Margaret are stunned, and the man isn't being patient when it comes to his newfound winnings. So much so, he pulls out a gun and puts it on the table. Margaret diffuses the situation and takes out her checkbook and writes out a $6,000 check to cash. You know what? I don't think I'm going to pay you. Don't get the guy mad for heaven's sake. Don't get the guy mad. Pay the man. You crazy bitch. Pay me what you owe. No, I don't think I will. And you know why? Because you can't threaten someone with a squirt gun. You slut, I can threaten you with anything I goddamn want. George. Shut up. George. What? I think it's Olioli in free. No, I'm doing fine. No, George, you blew the gap. I have? Yes. Told you a squirt gun wouldn't work. A squirt gun would have worked. You didn't have to fill it. What, am I going to threaten someone with an empty gun? No, George, you're right, of course. You guys are fantastic. What, do you do this for a living? Ask her if she meant. You're not miffed at us, are you? I mean, nothing personal. You guys were going to call me out of my money. It was only business. It was only business. It was only business, huh? It's the American way. I don't know about you folks, but I'm starved. Anybody care for a snack? Told you the damn squirt gun wouldn't work. Cases and jacks, man with the axe, suicide case. Well, there you have it. A sucker born every minute, huh? And two to take him. Play past it. Here. Here's a souvenir of your escape from the con men. One thing you'll notice in the poker scene and throughout the film is how well shot the film is, especially the lighting. Even though the film is in color, it very easily could have been shot in black and white with its moodiness. Also, regarding the poker scene, Mamet is a huge fan of poker, and many of the uh, non-actors in the game were friends of Mamet, who had been in the same poker group together for over 20 years. Margaret, after initially being upset that she was almost conned out of her money, becomes fascinated with the gang of con men. They begin to show her some of the easiest short cons, which I could try to describe, but really it's best just to watch the film. So a short con is something that can be done at any time without great preparation, like a quick 20 bucks. It's whatever money the mark has on them at the time. Whereas a big con involves having the mark leave to try to get as much money as they can because they have an inherent need to help a person. Margaret goes home in a taxi for the night, but thinks fondly of her evening since it was so out of the ordinary for her. Her night of excitement affects her work life as she begins to question if any of the work she's doing is really helping her patients. She believes that she could be exactly like one of the con men she saw the night before. 
Maria tells her to do something that gives her joy and take a break from her work. So that night, Margaret decides to see Mike again. But he's not at the House of Games. He's at another bar. And like the night before, Mike surprises her by acting like a waiter and giving her a drink at the booth while she's scribbling on a napkin. Margaret has a proposition for Mike. He would be part of a study for her next book, where she details the life of a con man. Mike surprisingly agrees, and they go to a check-cashing place, for example, number one. You'll call me when it comes in? Yes, sir. Thank you. The basic idea is this. It's called a confidence game. Why? Because you give me your confidence? No, because I give you mine. How do you get money when you have no money? Watch closely. This is called short con. Would you please check again, please? Howard, Martin, Howard, money order for $300. hasn't come in yet. As I told you, sir, the moment... It was it... supposed to arrive this afternoon. The moment it arrived... All right, all right. Thank you. I'm expecting some money. Sergeant John Moran. One moment. Moran? Yes, sir. No, I'm sorry. It hasn't come in yet. They told me definitely by 9 o'clock. If you'll have a seat, I'll let you know the moment it arrives. Thank you. Can you beat that? Can you beat this? I've been waiting here since, honey, since 3 o'clock this afternoon. No. 3 o'clock this afternoon. I got my car stolen, my wallet. Kid's in a hotel room, hasn't eaten since noon. They told me I'd have my money by 9 o'clock. I swear to God. I've got to pick up a bus ticket. When's the bus leaving? Not until 6, but i got to pick up the ticket. Where are you going? Back to Pendleton. You're in the core? Joe, I was in the core. When were you in? 6870. Yeah, I was there. Marty Howard. John Moran. John. Okay, look, what do you need for the bus? 40. When my money comes in, I'll give you the 40. Go back to the base. No, I, I couldn't take that. The hell, what are you gonna do, miss your formation? I'll lend you the 40. When you get back to the base, send it back. Um, no, you get on that bus. Thank you. Nothing to it. You do the same for me. If my money comes in first, you no, take... No, we'll be all right. Uh-uh, no. If my money comes no, in first... No, I you... couldn't do that. Moran! Can I see some ID, please? Thank you. Now that man is going to give his money to a total stranger. Now. You've got to take some money from me. I want you to take it. What do you need? No, we'll get by. No, wait. You tell me. What do you need? I've got it right here. Save your money, Joe. Semper Fi. 
Sergeant Moran is actually played by William H. Macy in an early role. Mike just gave a lesson to the psychiatrist in human nature that none of her casebooks could have ever taught her. And this is the epitome of street smarts versus book smarts. You impressed? So you can't cheat an honest man. That's probably true. But what we've just seen is the operation of a slightly different philosophic principle. Which is? Don't trust nobody. Were you in the Marines? You see, everybody gets something out of every transaction. I give that guy my confidence. I ask him for help. And what he gets is he feels like he's a good man. Now, what do you get out of this transaction? I told you. Did you? Yes, I said that I wanted to. You want to know what tell? I'll show you another one. Give me your hand. Think of a finger. Think of one. You thinking of one? Yes. Okay. I'm going to tell you which finger you're thinking of. Do you think I can do that? This one. Yes. How did you know? How did I know? Because you were thinking of it. Do you want to make love with me? Excuse me? Because you're blushing. That's a tell. The things we think, the things we want, we could do them or not do them, but we can't hide them. What is it you think I want? I'll tell you. Somebody to come along. Somebody to possess you. To take you into a new thing. Would you like that? want that? Yes. What is it? Yes. That's good. So Mike's line of don't trust nobody was originally written as don't trust anybody. Joe Montana asked if he could change it because he believed that nothing was what Mike would say. And that it would also fit the line better. Mike and Margaret go to a fancy hotel and Mike attempts to check in. However, he doesn't have a reservation and they're fully booked. While speaking to the desk clerk, a guest at the hotel drops off his room key. Mike distracts the clerk and quickly takes the key that was left on the counter. And just like that, they have a room for the night. Margaret worries that the man with the room key might return. But Mike is sure that he won't be back for the majority of the night as he was wearing a tuxedo. Meaning he's definitely gone for a while. And if he does return, they'll deal with it when or if that actually happens. The two have sex and chat a bit before leaving the room before the man comes back. Margaret can't help herself and decides to take something from the room as a memento. As they leave the hotel, Margaret gets deeper into Mike's world. I have to go. Can I go with you where you're going? Where do you have to be? I've actually got to be right here. Oh, Christ, what time is it? What is it? Look, look. You remember Joey from last night? Your friend. The guy in the bow tie. Slowly, slowly look over my left shoulder and tell me if you see him. Yes, he's just crossing the street. Oh, Christ. What is it? There's a bit that I'm supposed to do here. Okay, okay, I'm going to call you. Soon. Let me do this with you. 
No, babe, goodbye. You're getting into the frame up. Let me do this with you. No, this is not a game. We're about to sting this guy. I'll do it with you, please. Let me do it with you. Just tell me what to do. Oh, babe, you're mucking up my timing. Come on. You're my wife. You follow my cue. Whatever I do, don't volunteer anything. However strange things seem, keep your mouth shut, and the only one you know is me. in the briefcase accidentally left by George, which is Ricky Jay from the poker game, was full of cash. The Mark, played by J.T. Walsh, who was with Joe, now wants to be part of the deal, splitting up the found money. Everyone goes to the hotel room and discovers there's $80,000 in the briefcase. Now, the genius of the con is to make the Mark think that everything is his idea. He's the one that is trying to convince the con gang to split up the cash. Mike comes up with a ruse that he works at the bank and that he'll get $20,000 of clean money. He'll give his $20,000 to the Mark, and Joe will keep the $80,000 because it may be counterfeit for all they know. The Mark balks at this and says that he'll go to his bank and get $30,000, give the $30,000 to them, and keep the $80,000 of cash. The idea is that the money in the briefcase is going to be shipped to his location, but the con man will swap the briefcase full of cash before it's shipped. And what can the Mark do? He can't go to the police saying that the money he found on the street and was going to steal never arrived. And then the con gang makes out with the $30,000 from the Mark. By the way, Mike lets Margaret know that the money isn't counterfeit. They borrowed $80,000 from the mob just for the night. So while passing the bathroom, Margaret sees the Mark changing in the bathroom and notices that he's wearing a gun and has a walkie-talkie. He's actually an undercover cop. He's a cop. What? He's a cop. I heard him on the walkie-talkie. Oh, my God. We've got to get her out of here. Well, you bloody better well believe it. Hold it. Briefcase. Got it. What did we forget? Good. Come on. Where are you going? Well, it's just my wife. She's got a car. No, no, no. Hold on. We're going to stay with you. She... Nobody goes anywhere. She's very ill. Police, don't move. I told you, my wife is ill. You move back. You can get on the floor, sit on your hands. You're under arrest. It's all over for today. No. You move and I'll blow your goddamn head off. I've got to get out of here. Oh! 
How is he? Yeah, he's dead. I can't be here. Why did you have to kill him? Are you out of your mind? Got about seconds to get out of here. Straight bitch, and she panicked. Shut up. Go check the door. Margaret was trying to leave during the struggle, the cop accidentally shoots himself in the stomach. Mike, Joe, and Margaret need to quickly leave the hotel without being spotted by the cop's backup patrol that he called on the walkie-talkie. In order to escape, Margaret is told that she needs to steal a car from the hotel parking garage. She initially refuses, but Joe gets rough with her before Mike steps in and calmly but sternly tells her she needs to steal a car or they're all going to jail. So Margaret steals the closest car, which also has the keys in the ignition, which is a red and white 1962 Cadillac Eldorado convertible. They escape the hotel without anyone noticing. They pull over at a deserted location to stash the car, and then they get another surprise. All my life, Mike. All my life. I never had a moment's violence. Never saw a moment's violence. Get it. Wipe it down and let's get out of here. I swear to God... And you had to bring your square John Broad into it. You had to bring your freak into the game. Okay, okay. It's happened. It's something that happened. It was an accident. An accident? God damn you, you broke the first rule. I should have turned around the first moment you brought the broad. I brought the broad? Who brought the goddamn cop? Where did you get the cop? I found him at the apparel show. He looked like a businessman. Okay, okay, shut he up. Looked- I said shut up! We're gonna get the car wiped out. In a couple minutes, we'll be out of here and we're home clean. None of this ever happened. You go home, nobody even knows your name, and it's all over. But give the mob back their money. Where's the briefcase? You had it. You had it at the garage. You had the briefcase. I thought we put it in the car. Where is it, Joe? It isn't there. What does this mean? I'm sorry, Mike, I swear. When we were in the garage... Shut up, let me think for a second. What does it mean? I'm sorry, Mike, I was scared. You were scared? You son of a bitch, you've killed us! What does it mean? It means we've lost $80,000 we borrowed from the mob. And if we don't pay it back tonight, they turn us over for that cop we killed. I can give you the money. You got senile, old man. I can give you the money. I need $80,000 by this evening. I'll get it. I'll give it to you. You have that kind of money? I can get it. Then for God's sakes, get it. All right, there's about 30 minutes left. And what's going to happen? Will Margaret get the $80,000 to pay back to the mob? Or is this just another part of the con? You're just going to have to watch and find out. And keep in mind, like everything up to this point, nothing about this movie is what it seems. And it's one of those hidden gems that fans of film need to check out. You'll be guessing until the very end. 
Now, House of Games is a throwback to the cerebral film noir of the 1940s and something that was totally different in the action-heavy late 1980s. There's a timelessness of this story, and the acting means the film still holds up incredibly well today. And look, the film is somewhat dialogue-heavy, just like Glengarry Glenn Ross. But I also think this is welcomed for film buffs looking for more than just redundant superhero films and remakes. Now, regarding the theory that the reason a person in the psychology field would be prone to the con game is that their field could be construed as a form of conning a patient into getting better. That's a really intriguing theory, meaning that is anyone really, quote-unquote, cured from going to a psychologist? And if they do make strides, it always takes many, many sessions. Is this part of that so-called con? And maybe that's the reason that Margaret's character was so interested in Mike as a con artist. In many ways, Mike was a street psychologist himself. All right, a fun fact. According to David Mamet, despite the excellent reviews the film received and a limited showing in four theaters, Orion decided against spending the money for the prints and publicity that would have accompanied a general lease and sent the film almost directly to TV and video, which is a shame because many people missed out on this wonderful film. One person that didn't miss out because I decided to show it to her was Lindsay. So she joins me to catch this film for the first time and gives her fresh take about what she thought. And I'll be back next week with yet another random movie from my DVD collection. Okay, we're back with Lindsay. Welcome back, Lindsay. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me. Hey, everybody. So I think you're happy with this one because this wasn't Good Luck Chuck. Yes. It wasn't uh, a silly comedy, so I actually gave you a somewhat serious, even though there's flim-flam artists going on in it, it's still a, a film noir, it's a serious type of movie. Yeah, I mean, I'm A, grateful that this was <laughs> You're grateful. a more serious uh, film that um, it wasn't apparently I drew the short straw to get, uh, and I liked this film. This was interesting. I mean, there are a little bit of, you know... There's some weird moments in this, too. Um, it's interesting that it's David Mammoth that directed it. He's done some other really good things. We were just talking about that uh, earlier. Um, but I like this film. Like, in general, I did think that this one was interesting. And it took some twists that maybe I didn't see. Some I did see, but some I didn't. Yeah. And I appreciated that. And I liked the feel of the film. It, it was um, engaging. And it definitely held my interest even though sometimes older films you know like mid to late 80s i guess this is what 87 yeah they can almost get a little hokey um and there were a few moments like that lindsey wagner who plays um lindsey krauss oh yeah lindsey krauss wasn't the bionic woman yeah she was not the bionic woman right lindsey krauss not Lindsay Wagner. See, there's not a lot of Lindsay, so basically you could flip a coin and get one or the other. At least I didn't say Lindsay Buckingham. I know that's totally oh, the wrong that would have been really gender wrong. and yeah. also uh, profession because that's a musician. Yeah. Uh, but again, there's there's not a lot of Lindsays, right? So, yeah. you know, one of my, my namesakes here. Yeah. Lindsay Krauss, let's name her properly. She played uh, this character, Dr. Margaret Ford. And... The acting's interesting, but it's very noiry, so I yeah. try to give it a bit of a pass because those films have a vibe to them, and she was probably just playing into that right. vibe. And playing a psychiatrist, so there also can be a little different than normal people, I would say. Yeah. They're a little more deliberate with their speak. Yeah, yeah, I would say that. There are some moments where I'm like, what? It almost seemed like 
while she's an American actress, it almost seemed like she was hiding an accent or but something. But she wasn't. But she wasn't. Yeah. Uh, and it was just, there was some weird, there was some weird deliberateness with her speak. But again, it probably fits the noir genre. So yeah. I'm going to try to give that a pass, even though it bugged me a little bit. Um, not enough that it was... Like, super frustrating. This movie definitely could have been made in the 40s. Like, it has that vibe to it. Like, the con man, the... Yeah. The She's not a femme fatale, but maybe she is. You have to see the movie. But yeah, it's got that, that weird vibe. And almost the whole feel of it seems... Because it's very sleepy. There's not a lot of people, out, like, outside of the main nucleus of, of the characters no. in the film. I was also surprised how many well-known character actors showed yeah. up in this one. This was not... Um, this was not devoid of, of other interesting character actors. J.T. Walsh showed up as a... Uh, I don't even want to say who it is because I don't want to ruin parts of the film. No. Uh, as an interesting character that was yep. a bit unexpected. You call um, William called, H. Macy. I called William H. Macy, who played a bit part in a Western Union. Yeah. Uh, and Meshach Taylor, while I couldn't think of his name, I was like, oh, that's the dude from uh, Designing Women. And for me, it was Hollywood and, and Mannequin. It was Hollywood for Mannequin, but... So those are some pretty well-known um, character actors that, like William H Macy, became a you know a, a blockbuster of all actor, um, you know, and is probably bigger than anybody in the film, maybe even Joe Montana. But Joe Montana is pretty well respected. Yeah, but William actor. H Macy's been oh, yeah. some pretty pretty amazing Fargo. films, and um, you know he he had that that crazy role on Shameless, which oh, I yeah. watched for many seasons. But uh, anyway. Um, this one was this one was one of the better, more interesting ones that I watched. So far. So far. So far. Yeah. So you'd never even heard of this film? No. Yeah. I hadn't. I you asked me if I had seen this and I thought I was thinking of House of Cards, which was right. a show with Kevin and Spacey. Spacey. Yeah. Uh, and that I hadn't finished, although what I had seen of that show was good. Mm-hmm. But no, I I did not. Uh, know what this film was. I was surprised when you said it was a David Mann film. I'm like, oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. okay. I, I wouldn't mind seeing this one. Yeah. Well, what was great about, uh, I, I mentioned in the, my part, my portion of this uh, episode, I for, I was introduced to this film because of the, um, the college course I took. Mm-hmm. So there was no way I probably, I mean, I would have eventually probably seen it because I like studying film, but uh, yeah, he brought it to my attention. I think mostly because it didn't do well at the box office. It's kind of a cult classic. And many people, if they checked it out, was because of David Mamet. I think if they were to have made this film today, yeah, it would have been even more compelling. Why? I just think the way they would have handled some of the scenes, it would have felt a little more like authentic. Mm-hmm. I know noir has this vibe to it, and I'm I don't even really know how to describe it because it's done a little bit differently. Many times I've seen it done in the genre, like it has that that mysterious feeling, um, and almost slow feeling. But I don't know. I feel like if you were to remake this today with certain actors, um, you'd probably knock this one out of the park. So I don't know. I think they would ruin it because they probably make it a half an hour too long. Too long. Well, you you think a lot of movies are they're way are too long, and I don't disagree. I yeah. mean, there there are plenty of films that are exhausting in length, but. I don't know. There's no reason for a John Wick movie to be almost three hours long. That's a little bit weird. Yeah. But I would say that the 80s-ish part to this, while I adore the yeah. 1980s and love everything about it, I think it would have maybe like greater sophistication if it was made today. Maybe. 
Yeah. I mean, maybe. And it really isn't the actors. It's more the time period. If those same actors as older actors mm -hmm. did this film today, I bet they'd do it differently. Like, I still think the film would be good. And I still think that the actors they chose for all of these parts would be awesome in the film today. Yeah. I just think they'd play it differently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think there's probably two reasons for this. One, it's Mamet's first film that he directed, even though he had written films, it's totally different directing, so maybe he made some mistakes um, or did it differently. Plus, it was the 80s, so there had to be a certain polish to it that maybe they, there's a grittiness they maybe would have, maybe it would have been better in the 70s. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I just feel like if you remade it, same everything, same yep. actors, Cause the story's same there. director, same, I just think it would turn out better, yeah. even if everyone was older in it. Mm -hmm. Because you know what? How interesting if all those characters were, like, elderly. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I, I think Bama should remake it <laughs> with all the same people. Are all these same people still alive? I, think I so. don't think so. Probably. No? I, don't, I doubt it. What a bummer. Yeah. Um, okay, so you you always think of fashion. You didn't care for her Wendy Lindsay Krause's hair. <laughs> well, I mean, okay, this is the 1980s. I, there are scenes where her pixie cut looks really good when it's like less coiffed and shaped, like when it's just sort of like natural. Yeah. Um, but when she's kind of helmeting it, I'm not as big. She of a blow fan. dries it. Well, no, she's like. That she's like spraying or shellacking that down somehow. I just don't like that. It's pretty lady. It looks so much better when it's natural. Like at the end, by the end, you know, I really, I like her look. And I think what's interesting is I don't want to give away parts of the plot here, no. but as her character develops, yeah. I would say that that look of very kind of quaffed and stiff and whatever definitely fits her character at the start of the film, but you'll notice by the end she's not really looking like no. that, and I feel like her personality is is morphing as well. So I, I don't love the hair, but I have a feeling that it was deliberately chosen to mm -hmm. that look was deliberately chosen to create a feeling about her when you meet her in the beginning of the film, and and it works. I mean, as much as I don't love it, it works. The rest of the fashion is just I mean, eighties. Well, the guys are pretty traditional. They're just wearing suits and yeah, but they're suits yeah. that fit like they did in the eighties. Yeah. That's fine. It's just more her her dresses interesting like that's another very i'm sure this was intentional because i have a feeling a lot of bits of this film were intentional i would say like she doesn't start the film really feminine in a sense uh -huh. but by the end that final scene she she's totally wearing makeup and, and she's wearing that beautiful dress i actually really love her outfit in the last scene i think she looks great mm -hmm. so i think it was she has, the most she has the most character development of anyone in the film. She does. I mean, yeah. she progresses. They, everyone else pretty much stays who they are. Yeah, I think yeah. that's true. Well, what did you really like about the film? And, what, and you kind of already mentioned what you didn't really like. but uh, I really liked the story. Mm -hmm. I think the concept of this is really well done. And I don't want to give a lot away. No, don't give away the end. <laughs> but I would say that the way it's... it's um, the story's interesting. Mm -hmm. The way it's kind of constructed and the way the needle's threaded is is well done. I like the feeling it gives you because it kind of, I get the sense from very little information because we actually really don't get to know these you don't characters get any that well at all. at all. Actually, I think that's a good thing, though. I get the vibe that she's kind of like a boring lady mm -hmm. and maybe she needs something in her life to change and be a little bit 
interesting and more exciting. And I guess you get that vibe through lots of different little clues. Mm -hmm. um, but I like how that was done. I did want to know what happened next. And there were a couple parts that I was starting to... Guess. Guess. Which is okay. Which is fine. Um, That's you being a savvy movie watcher. Yeah. But I'm trying to think, what didn't I like about I will it? say, not, not to interrupt you, but... If they were to remake it today, they would add too much backstory. Probably. And that's the problem. I think sometimes it's better where you go in not really knowing much, and it's up to you to figure out what's up with yeah, her wife. Yeah, this film would have done a good job of that. I mean, to me, she seemed like a successful, mm -hmm. career-driven, but kind of boring lady who had a lot, um, who had a lot of accolade and public interest in the work that she was doing mm -hmm. and the fact that she was a successful writer at this point right and she was a psychiatrist and looked like she had a successful private practice mm -hmm. but she seemed lonely and mm -hmm. boring and kind of isolated and she kind of looked like that mm -hmm. like her physical look looked like that but isn't and it she, better that they kept it ambiguous like that so you discovered that it as is. opposed yeah, to just no, spelling it out with yeah. i think that that's a good yeah. that's a good element to Maybe having this filmed in the 80s versus mm -hmm. today. I don't know what they would have done today, but they right. probably would have overdeveloped that. But that's the that's the impression I had of her. Sure. Which is the way I felt, too. Even the scene, mm -hmm. bizarre, but even the scene in her house, and we don't really go in her house no. more than one time. Mm -hmm. Obviously, she has, she has a lovely place. She goes to sleep on the couch that night. Right. Like, she's in her nightdress and her little sweater. And, you know, looks like she's just finishing stuff up in the house and turns off the lights. No no noise in the background. No radio or TV or anything. And then it's like she's going to go sleep on her couch. What? <laughs> That's just so strange to me. Like, it also felt like, I don't know, I did get a weird feeling about her. Like, there's just, she felt lost to me, even though she was extremely successful. She felt like a very lost, kind of lonely lady. And that mm -hmm. definitely opened her up as smart as she is to you know some potential either bad influences or corruption or whatever mm -hmm. right she or a seemed, con yeah she just seemed lonely and sad yeah well i think that's why film noir always, it, the film fatales always have very interesting characters sometimes it's cliche sometimes it's kind of predictable but i didn't think this movie was as predictable I say especially the first time i saw it granted you're seeing this at in your in your 40s i saw this when i was 18 19 yeah okay so it was a little less predictable for me then but i still i i kind of saw some things coming without giving it away obviously were you surprised by the ultimate outcome yeah i mean yes and no because mm -hmm. i always you can tell this woman is smart enough yeah and cunning enough in the fact that she knows the mind. Mm -hmm. She understands the human psyche. Which is why it was an interesting mark being that of all people that shouldn't have fallen for a con. Right. But at the same time, it's interesting how this concept of forgive yourself gets walked right. into the film. And how she ends up using that. Mm -hmm. And it almost becomes... A justification or like a like, battle cry yeah. for her, which I think is interesting. And the only other thing that, that didn't make sense to me, and you kind of spilled the beans on this when it was happening. But yeah. I really don't understand the, I guess, the counsel uh, that she was providing to the female yeah. inmate in the jail who I 
guess had murdered someone was what they they shared later on and i don't know if she was sort of in a in in psych evaluation inside a prison or something but the storyline the plot line like related to that i was trying to figure out what kind of that meant yeah but i also felt like it had to maybe mean something i think it's along the lines of she's tired of listening to other people's problems and she's tired of being just like this like it's just it's a lot for her. she wants to get out of her daily rut i, I guess get that but think think about the scene that scene where the patient slash inmate yeah. is trying to tell her about the dream she's yeah. having, which has some really specific but kind of like weird things in it. And then you fast forward to a scene mm-hmm. later in the film that she's having a bit of a confrontation yeah. with Joe Montana. Mm-hmm. He kind of starts saying almost some of the same things that the lady that was was the yeah. inmate uh, patient was repeating. Do you, so maybe, did you catch that? I like, did. So maybe that whole scene is a foreshadowing, too. I, I think it might be. Yeah. So I don't think it's insignificant. No. I actually think it has significance, but I think it's weird. It is weird. And it's weird that some of the same language that came up from her describing her mm-hmm. dreams, and by her I mean like the inmate murderer yeah. patient. But if I hadn't brought it up, I don't know if you would have really caught on maybe i don't know maybe you would have. I, I i may not have caught on to the fact that it was just sort of like you know not relevant but i definitely caught on to the pattern yeah yeah that joe montaigne repeated later and right. i found it very eerily similar to what she was saying right. in the prison and that i caught mm-hmm. i would have caught that either way well i think that's why this i just film... don't know what it means but i think it's no. significant but i think that's why this film lends itself to being watched over and over because you're going to pick up new things it also makes me think that she had her own troubled childhood. Maybe. Like that something was wrong. Again, that's why it's young. good. You're the one that's coming up with this. Yeah. They don't have to spell that out. And maybe that's why ultimately the way she turned out was the way she turned out because maybe she struggled. Like one thing that comes up several times in the film is like she has her own Freudian slips. Oh, always. On a few things. Mm-hmm. And they get With her mentor. Out. Right, with yeah. her mentor. Mm-hmm. And then she and, did and it again the with, outcome. With, yeah, with Joe Montana. Yeah. So I, I don't know. Like, she's not as... We tend to think of psychiatrists or therapists or people who are in that field as being, like, fairly flawless and, like, n- knowing the answers. I mean, obviously nobody mm-hmm. knows all the answers. But it was interesting because her own psychology was revealed in some of these conversations and it's not rock solid. No, but I think the end... Uh, that might have been on purpose, where she said that what yes. she did. I I think yeah. that because I think she was trying to. Progress she was definitely outsmarting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, she was definitely um, asserting her um, her dominance and control over the situation, yeah. and I think she did that. But she still did it several times oh. prior when I don't think but, that that was. But even I think that's conscious. why. That's why it was a good setup for that. That that was the foreshadowing or the precursor. It, she, to use we, the tool. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But this one, to her own advantage, potentially. Yeah. It was interesting. Like, there were a lot of... This is a good movie a to watch nuanced, over and over. Yeah, like, is it significant? Is it insignificant? Did that mean something? Did that not right. mean something? And there were a lot of little things mm-hmm. that you could wonder about. And it's the type of movie, now that you know what happens, like if you watch it, you go back and you're like, oh, okay, I see where... This mm-hmm. could have been. So those are always fun movies. So yeah. 
Obviously, you would recommend this one? I would. I mean, ignore the fact that there's always going to be, like, little hokey things in some of these 80s films. I mean, that's how they were. And that it's film noir, so there's going to be some of that feeling and cliche built in. But I definitely think that this one is worth watching for what it is. I I thought it was was good. And I also like that you kind of don't know where it takes place. I We think it's Seattle. Maybe we we're think. talking about it. We think. the license plate. License plates, the weather, and a couple of yeah. scenes. And it certainly doesn't look like New York, Chicago, San Francisco, L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, it just doesn't have that vibe. So Seattle makes sense. But uh, it's interesting that you don't even know where it is. No. You, have no you really don't need it either. No. Actually. This could actually be a play, too. It, yeah. It's not. It definitely could have been a yeah. play. But, I mean, Mammoth was a playwright. A playwright, so yeah. It so makes sense. This, this could easily be translated. This could be translated to the stage now. Yeah. It, I liked it. I mean, again... Take, you know, or take for what it's worth, keep in mind the fact that there's always going to be a little bit of hokey. But if you can put that aside, there's a lot of interesting things in yeah. this. And I would love to see these same actors <laughs> do, it uh, do it again today. Or how about make a mini series out of it or something? It's interesting. Well, they would drag. If you're worried about what they well, would do Well, no, but film, maybe that's what it's for. They would drag the heck out of I don't. This, again, I've, I've talked know. about this on the podcast. I don't mind. Like, it's a weird mindset. You, I hear a three-hour movie, I'm thinking, oh, my God. But then if I watch, I could binge watch a eight-hour, you know, season of whatever because it doesn't seem mentally mm-hmm. like it's that long. There's something about a long movie that's a little different. Unless you're The Godfather, there, don't don't be doing a three-hour movie. There's no, no, yeah. Especially I a mean, Marvel movie. Well, you know, there's just more and more of that, like you said. But um, I would recommend this one. I would put this on the... On the yes list. Okay. It's worth seeing. Good luck, Chuck. No. House Correct. of Games, yes. Correct. Okay. I I uh. would agree with that. <laughs> Go back and listen to the Good Luck Chuck episode if you want to know what we're talking about. Well, or, or I feel bad for you if you do. Yeah. Well, as always, Lindsay Buckingham, it was great having you on. Oh, I thank you for hosting me. <laughs> and I Lindsay so Wagner. Here. I mean, my family did spell my name like what, Lindsay mean? Buckingham. Yeah. They chose not to spell it like Lindsay Wagner and Lindsay Krause, but like Lindsay Buckingham. So we're both EYs. It's fine. It's cool. Well, you are cool because you're on Damn Good Movie Memories. That's true. Thank you for allowing me to be cool on this show with well, you. Well, thank you for indulging me in watching these films. Well, this one was good. I'm glad you didn't give me a dog this time. This one I appreciate. Actually, a dog is insulting to a dog because I love doggies. I, I can't even say that about Good Luck Chuck. Well, good. I'm going to show you Ishtar next. Oh, okay. Well, that, that actually, that one I know would be pretty <laughs> I don't, interesting. I don't own it, but I was trying to think of a bad movie. So there you go. A bad movie. How about Ant-Man 3? Oh we already gosh. saw that shit. Oh, that was, that was rough. Yeah. Well, I, I would hope that you'd save some interesting ones for me upcoming, considering the torture that I went through with Good Look, Chuck. And I don't even mind films like that. That one's just not not good. It's well, just not I, a good I think I redeem myself here. Yeah, I'll, I would give you credit. This one was was interesting, and I'm really glad that uh, that I got to see this one. And I feel like I've paid my dues. Maybe. Okay, Jack and Jill with Adam Sandler coming up next with Lindsay. Oh, yeah, okay. If you are ever in the San Francisco Bay Area and still love collecting or renting DVDs or VHS tapes, come check out Captain Video and San Mateo at 2837 South El Camino Real. Captain Video is open six days a week and closed on Wednesday, and one of the last traditional video stores still running in the United States. New movies you can rent for $2.99 a day. Old movies you can rent for $2.99 for five days. 
And if renting isn't your thing, you can also purchase anything you find in the store. Be sure to tell Ira that you heard about Captain Video from the Damn Good Movie Memories podcast. Happy renting and happy collecting at Captain Captain Video. Video. Come hang out and chill with Brian A. Davis and the Bad Beat. Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on ThatMetalStation.com.